You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handled them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Pushkin. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Today, I'm joined by musician and composer Esty Hyam. Esty is one-third of the rock band Hyam, created by her and her two sisters, Danielle and Alana. The group was founded back in 2007, and after about five years of detours and false starts, they released their debut album, Days Are Gone, in 2013. Then, following that, they released two more records, including Women in Music Part 3, which earned them a historic Grammy nomination in 2021 as the first all-female rock group to be nominated for Album of the Year. Since then, they've appeared in Paul Thomas Anderson's Licorice Pizza, headlined a tour called One More Hyam, they had a featured song on the Barbie soundtrack, and most recently served as the opener on the West Coast leg of Taylor Swift's The Eras Tour. As the summer comes to a close, I wanted to celebrate the 10-year anniversary of Days Are Gone, along with all of the interesting work they've done since. For Esty, that includes working as a composer on a series of new films, including the Netflix original You Are So Not Invited to My Bat Mitzvah. We talk about her recent foray into composing throughout this conversation. We also talk about her upbringing in the Valley, the salad days of Hayam, the performers that inspired her from Molly Shannon to the Talking Heads, and what she hopes for both herself and the band in the years to come. That's all next after the break with our guest, Esti Hyam. Enjoy. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. 
Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member, FDIC, copyright 2024. J.P. Morgan, Chase & Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts. Esty. What's up? Hi. Hi. How's it going? Oh, wait. Do you want to go first? How are you? Okay, well, (laughs) I'm doing great. I'm doing fabulous. It's it's definitely a little toasty in here because I am wearing long sleeves in this Los Angeles heat. As a Pisces, usually I run very cold. Mm -hmm. Why is that? I I guess it has something to do with the time of, I mean, it's the time of year. It's February and March. Mm -hmm. So I came out the womb just being cold. Mm. Just the overall atmosphere of the it was just frigid you stepped on my first question on that one but yeah that's oh i'm sorry that was right what i had was was the first question what's your astrological sign is that where we're going with this no i know it's march 14th i know what it is you know that's pi day i do know that i also Uh know it's quincy jones's birthday okay quincy jones and albert einstein you guys have a lot in common we have i mean i like to think we do you know since the first time i met the three of you you danielle Alana, uh-huh. I felt like I was auditioning for like the fourth Heim sister role. But I think after the the era's tour, like all submissions are closed, right? Like Taylor you know, has cemented it. I think, listen, we're always holding auditions. Mm-hmm. That's the thing. I was a dark horse candidate anyway. You fit right. I mean, that hair, you fit right in. Um, no, I think, you know... She hasn't claimed it? I feel like she's claimed it. Taylor is the fourth time sister. Right. Of course she is. And doing this tour, the Eras tour, was like the most fun I've ever had. Mm-hmm. Not even just on tour, but like in general. Like every day was like going to Disneyland. I was So I wanted to start here because you all did like nine, ten shows with her? We did ten shows. Yeah. The New York Times recently ran an article titled how Taylor Swift's Eras Tour conquered the world. I mean, not no. And I know it's not no. So not now, no. now that it's been like two weeks since you performed, what are you taking away from like this summer? How how are you holding it? Um, I am taking away the f- fact that female friendship is so important. Just seeing like girls running around like a lot of them with like their moms and like who's and the moms were taylor fans like from back in the day all the way up till now now they have kids and like it's super generational the the sense of community and belonging and having such a shared experience like that that was my big takeaway there was so much joy in those stadiums mm-hmm. so like for that many people to just be having the time of their lives 
I felt like I could like taste it in a weird way. <laughs> and it's three and a half hours of that non-stop. Mm. So yeah, so then I would play the shows and then I would come home and like everyone would be like, okay, we're exhausted. We're going to bed. And I'd be like, no. Right. I'm going to be up for the next 10 hours <laughs> watching 90 Day Fiance <laughs> and The Real Housewives of New York. Like, I'm not sleeping. Yeah, I was I thinking, can't. What, what, what is your unwinding like, routine like? Mindless television. Mm-hmm. I'll like, I'll maybe read a chapter or two of a book mm-hmm. just to really tucker me out. <laughs> But, but the nothing re- like one chapter of a book, like to just... just to lights out, like really gets me, like I'm out. SD high, I'm gone. Aside from these Swift shows, yes, you've been doing like a whole lot this summer. That there's a song on Barbie, obviously. Yes, there's also this new film that's out called "You're So Not Invited to My Bat Mitzvah." Now, Danielle once described the musical process of Hayam as this. It's like putting together Mr. Potato Head part by part. When it comes to scoring, Mm -hmm. is it the same process or is there another toy analogy that you want to use? It's more like shoots and ladders now. (laughs) You kind of have to be more malleable, I think, as a composer, as, as opposed to being an artist where hopefully you have complete jurisdiction over the music that you're making. From start to finish, it's you, your vision, your lyrics. Or, you know, for people that don't write songs, like you're singing the song in the way that you want to sing. It's your voice. For the most part, there's a lot of autonomy. Mm -hmm. With composing, you have to be a little more slippery. What what does slippery mean? Like you see a scene and you're like, this is the feeling that I'm getting. This is how I feel when I watch this, and therefore, mm-hmm. this is the instrumentation I want to use. This is the, you know, the melody that I'm hearing when I watch this scene. You make it, you send it off to the powers that be, and then you get notes back that are like, you're a billion percent wrong. Mm-hmm. How are you with notes? So good with notes. I think that's maybe, there's, I think it's like a two-pronged situation with Estheim as a composer. Taking notes... Being collaborative, I think that is, I have to be that way. I have two other collaborators. And the good thing about Haim is there's three people. So more often than not, two people feel the same way and one may not. And in your dynamic, who are the two usually aligned? In I, full disclosure, my lyrics can go a little emo. I can go pretty dashboard confessional pretty quick. So usually I will present lyrics and again, kind of have to be a little bit slippery. Danielle and Alana will usually be like, that's a little intense. (laughs) We're going to reel it in a little bit. Let's shape it. I mean, I think all three of us, we take the art and the craft of songwriting extremely seriously. And because of that, you know, we have very strong opinions when it comes to what is great and if something could be greater. I think that's one thing. Speaking of Quincy Jones, I remember either reading an interview or watching an interview with him talking about Michael Jackson. And Michael would do, like, would write something. And it would be great. And then he would be like, we can beat it. He just constantly was trying to make... The melodies and the lyrics and the like the even like, you know, you hear that Thriller was mastered like mm-hmm. something like 20 times, mm-hmm. like something crazy. So I think we've kind of taken that on. And like we're always just trying to make the songs better and more vivid and, you know. Do you feel like you apply that same rigor to composing? I do. I mean, there's different cooks in the kitchen now. I work with my sisters, people that are, are related to me. And there is there is like an almost an element of trust there because I have known them. They've known me their whole lives. So with these new collaborators, you have to be a little more cordial. Cordial. And, and there's also a language barrier a little bit because <laughs> my sisters and I all speak. Not only do we speak sister, but we also speak music. They're going to say valley. Okay. Yeah, we yeah. speak valley. Like for sure, for sure. So 
there is a little bit of a language barrier. And I do think that it's a real thing because I know that USC has just started, like, making classes in the film department, like, talking to directors as a composer because there is, it's a different language. So I think I do a pretty good job of being able to kind of be a little bit of a film composer whisperer. And I guess because I've been around so many producers my whole life, I can kind of read between the lines and kind of pick up what they're putting down. So for this bat mitzvah film, yes, were you brought back to uh, your own bat mitzvah back in 1999? I mean, how could I not be? Th- this was at a roller rink in Reseda. Yes. Catered by Diamore's Pizza. Yep. And of this celebration... You once said that your parents had something to prove in mounting my bat mitzvah. What exactly were they trying to prove on your on your big holy day? Well, I think it was more that because I'm the oldest, this was their first foyer into bat mitzvah party planning. It was their debut? Big debut. And I grew up not necessarily having like Like, on my birthdays, my parents would, like, get me a cake. I didn't really have parties. I didn't really have sleepovers. But my bat mitzvah, I was basically like, I'm 13. I'm a woman now. Women have parties. (laughs) So we're doing it. And they were like, okay, we're doing it. They were excited. And, again, it was kind of like the world is your oyster with parameters. So, like, again, like, I grew up, you know, I grew up in the valley, English as a second language dad, American mom. It wasn't like we had, you know, a lot of money to spend on something. But my parents were like, we want you to be happy. Like, what is your dream? The day that that happened, I was watching MTV. And I saw Mark McGrath, Sugar Ray, roller skating in the Every Morning video. And then I think, like, the next song on TRL was literally... Eve Six, Inside Out, where there was, in the music video, it was a great music video, there was a girl in hot pants Mm -hmm. and roller skates. Very roller girl style. And also, like, I'd seen Boogie Nights probably way earlier than I should have seen Boogie Nights. How how early? In 97, which I I was, what, 11? But the TBS version. What the hell is the TBS version? Like, the highly edited version. Mm -hmm. So, like, was on cable. Look, I saw it at 14 with my mother. She showed me the film. Your mom is so cool. You know, that's a good reading of it. <laughs> Your mom. No, it's true. Listen, there were a lot of signs pointing to roller rink, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And I think my mom, bless her, was like really wanted, when I said like Mark McGrath, Sugar Ray, um, roller rink, my mom took that as that's the venue we're going to do it. And that exact... <laughs> venue is where we're going to do your bat mitzvah. I'm curious because you've talked about your bat mitzvah a lot. Yes. And this period of going to bar and bat mitzvahs. Yes. And you said they were a lot of fun, but I also remember a lot of hurt feelings and tears. What was happening at this time? Sam. Okay, let me me set the scene. Esti Haim, 13 years old. Mm. Cystic acne, braces, oily hair. Zero style. Six feet tall. I mean, the height's good. Not when you're surrounded by Jewish men that literally come up to your pipic. Every Jew at these bar mitzvahs was literally, their eyes were at my navel. It wasn't even fun like they'd be at my boobs. Like, they were literally at my navel. That would have been okay. Boobs would have probably been fun. That probably would have been like Hashem coming down and being like, I'm giving you a blessing. Instead, I stuck out like a sore thumb. You could drive a truck through my two front teeth. And then I got braces. And then I talk like this. So on top of that, like, I just was not, I was not cute. And all I wanted was to dance with, I can name check him. His name was Alex Schneiderman. And Alex Schneiderman would not give me the time of day. Why? Neither would Jack Zellman. Neither would David Starkoff. How far did they come up? Alex was my height. height. That's why I was like, we're both tall. What is the issue? Have they regretted it since? He definitely regrets it. Alex, if only... If only you knew. By that age, like 14, 15, you're playing bass 
in your family's band. Yes. Rock and Hiam. Yep. I was thinking, were were your classmates confused by your passion for like music? Did did they understand it? Because by that point, weren't you already like skipping out on birthdays to perform at the Saint Francis de Sales Fair? Fair? Yep. Oh, I was skipping out on so many things. I like that you knew that I was going to say that. Oh yeah, Saint Francis de Sales every year, standing gig. We did that. We did the Sherman Oak Street Fair every year. We played for Children's Hospital because I'm a type one diabetic. We played, like, my parents, like, office parties, never for money. So your friend calls you up, and they're like, hey, Estee. Yeah? It's my 15th birthday. Sorry, rehearsal. Did you have a lisp and braces then? Sorry. Zoe, I'm so sorry. Because, <laughs> and literally, this is my friend Zoe Unruh, mm-hmm. also the best. Her birthday was October 16th, and that was the same week as... um the Sherman Oaks Street Fair. So I could never go to her birthday parties. Never. She was one of my best friends in high school. So even then you were sacrificing. Oh, oh my. I mean, that's more all... more than most kids would. Well, what? Like, you know, being a kid and like being in a family band. Mm-hmm. When I was a kid, I thought every family had a family band. <laughs> so like uh, we started Rockenheim when I was 10 or 11. And in my mind... I was like, well, if my family's doing this, this must be what every family's doing. So my friends would be like, we're going to the fashion square this weekend. Um, Essie, do you want to come? And I'd be like, how are you going to the mall? Don't you have rehearsal? And my friends would be like, what? Are you, what? What do you mean? I'd be like, don't you have family band rehearsal? At some point, you must have realized. We're that we're weird. No, that you, that you were pursuing a passion. I mean, looking back, Of course, I look back on it and I'm like, it was so wholesome and it was a thing that I got to do with my family. And it honestly, I had my 10,000 hours by the time I was like 13. Mm. And you mentioned my friends. My friends thought it was the coolest thing ever. Mm -hmm. I didn't. I was like, this is weird. Like, Because of the familial? Yes. Like, what 13-year-old wants to hang out with their parents every weekend? So I was just like... Your parents seem pretty fun, though. They're so fun. But I remember feeling really, like, embarrassed as a 13-year-old playing the Sherman Oaks Street Fair and seeing all of, like, my friends in the audience and being like, I cannot believe this is happening. And then all of them coming up to me after and being like, that was the coolest thing I've ever seen. And there being some kind of like dissonance there. Mm-hmm. I was like, I don't understand because I don't think this is cool. Would their compliments alleviate some of your anxiety about it? Maybe in the moment, a little bit. Because like, who doesn't like praise? But at the same time, I was probably just kind of like, yeah, but guys, like still like, ugh. I got I got gigs to do like I got gigs to do with this family band for probably the next couple of years. Like, I'm tired. I'm tired. So you were tired at 16. I was tired at 16. I and to be fair, I also was going to a high school that was really, really difficult, really hard. And I wasn't even doing music. I was doing theater. I wanted to be an, an actress, Molly Shannon. She, mm-hmm. I was like, I want to be her. I wanted to be Molly Shannon and Felicity, like the smattering of the two. I wanted to, like, fall in love with my R.A., work at Dina DeLuca, go to NYU, like Molly Shannon. Like, that was what I you had saw. it mapped out. <sighs> oh, my God. I was like, I'm getting the fuck out of Los Angeles. I'm moving to New York, and I'm going to be on SNL. Couldn't be further from what happened next. Sliding doors. Am I right? As you and your sisters begin to take music more and more seriously, mm-hmm. this is a little bit later in high school, Yeah, you do what any good older sibling would do. Uh-huh. And procure a couple of fake IDs. Absolutely. Together, the three of you drive over the hill into Los Angeles and basically crash all of these shows that were happening at the time. Was it those shows that kind of fortified your desire to to pursue this as a career? I think it fortified our friendship as sisters. I think it was kind of what brought us together. Again, Alana at the time had braces. And I would just tell her not to, like, I was like, you do not open your mouth. If someone asks you a question, you don't answer it. You're, you're (laughs) silent. 
Did she abide by that? Absolutely. So obedient. I think we were all pretty obedient, I think, until we got into high school. I think that was when we we reached the capacity for obedience. And then we hit 16 and it was like out the window. Like, it's time to live a little bit. And you did. And we did. And and I but I also know that my parents knew that I would take care of Danielle and Alana if when we were going out. Were there shows or bands that kind of offered a template? for what you wanted to become with your sisters? Yes. The first band I think that all three of us kind of collectively became obsessed with, and I'd like to think that I introduced it to my sisters, was Rilo Kiley and the lead singer being Jenny Lewis. And the great thing about Rilo Kiley was that they were a local band. So they were playing around L.A., gigging around L.A. And I'd just gotten my license. And I remember buying takeoffs and landings at Second Spin in the Valley and showing it to Danielle and Alana and them then also becoming kind of obsessed with songs. And, you know, we went on the internet and would see pictures of Jenny and she's just so fucking cool. And the band itself was just, they were just cool. And I think we would go to those shows and just be like, how cool would it be if we could do this? Oh, like how much fun. Like, and they look they looked like they were having the best time. And like the people at those shows were like screaming the lyrics and like diehard Jenny Lewis fans. And just like it was also just like such an indie schmindy time. Like music in the early 2000s and like the predecessor to like a, a grizzly bear and a vampire weekend. And like I kind of look at that era as like a kind of like the heyday of of indie mm. and my era of indie. But like in 2000, 2001, I was like, Rilo Kiley. And like we were, I was also obsessed with like Elliot Smith, just like even, like from a songwriting perspective, but also from like just melodies and like, and then I, I was getting into like Dinosaur Jr. and I was getting into Saves the Day. And there were like all these different offshoots of like indie and like post-punk and like whatever. So I would go to Second Spin in the Valley and pick up these CDs for like three or four bucks and bring them home and then show them to Danielle and Alana. And so we collectively kind of created this obsession with these bands together. Mm. And as we grew older, I think each of us would then kind of bring a new band into the collective. Like, what do we think about this? And then, we, you know, nine times out of ten, we'd be like, okay, we're adding this to the vernacular. Because mm-hmm. before that, it was all music that my parents listened to. And then I think once I got into high school... And I was hanging, you know, again, my high school was full of super cool indie kids that were like, you know, like obsessed with like the French New Wave and like, you know, Proust, the Nouvelle Vague, like, you know what I mean? So like super cool shit that, you know, that it was like if it wasn't French, it wasn't cool. I'm just trying to imagine kids quoting Oh, Proust like breathless. And Pro- Proust oh my and in God. Search of like, Lost Time. I just Swan's can't. Way. It was like people were like, like if I have a daughter, I'm going to name her Francoise. It was like very much that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like literally kids would wear berets to school. It was very free. And you were in a like in a collective of like just kids who were thirsting, thirsting for creativity and always trying to create. And then I think I kind of weirdly passed that down to Danielle and Alana. I mean, they both ended up going to the same high school that I did. But I think musically, I think that we were just super jazzed that we were in a city where there was so much live music happening all the time and so many places where you could see music for free. We'll be right back with musician S.D. Hyatt. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. 
Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts. Coming back from that obsession that you had, that you passed down to Danielle, then Alana, the three of you in earnest tried to create this band of yours. Yes. And from 2006 to 2011, you have five pretty difficult sounding years. Yes. That don't go the way I think any of you wanted. Rejection from labels, venues, etc. How did you handle that? Blind faith. And not understanding that failure is an option. <laughs> just a, like... Just being like, like, we're not even going to go down that path. And your parents felt the same? My parents were like, get a job, go to college. I mean, I think that they loved the fact that we were doing something together. Mm -hmm. But it was never something where they were like, it's sink or swim. They weren't like, this is, you know, this has to happen. I think they were just stoked that we were spending so much time together. But you did get a job. I mean, you were a I did get a job. A I got waitress. many jobs. You worked in retail. Yep. You were a hostess. Yep. I was a hostess and a waitress at the Cheesecake Factory at the Galleria in Sherman Oaks. I was a hostess and a waitress at the Daily Grill on uh, Laura King and Ventura and at the Daily Grill at Universal City Walk. So I worked. That was not a fun time for me. At some point in this process. Yes. Of like uploading your music to MySpace. Yes. Paying your friends to come, come to shows. To very, shows. Very much so. Was there ever a moment where you couldn't see, like, the road ahead that it seemed unclear? The only thing that I remember is when I graduated college. I graduated from UCLA. Alana graduated high school. Mm -hmm. Danielle was done touring with Jenny and Julian Casablancas. We said, okay, we're going to give ourselves a full year. We're going to hunker down, write a billion songs. Like, we're going to write so many songs. We're going to produce them, and then we're hopefully going to put them out. If nothing happens from there, we should revisit. Mm -hmm. That, I think, was the only time where we were like, that is sink or swim. And that was in 2011. 2010. 2010 to 2011. It's funny you mentioned, like, 2010. Yes. 2011. By that point, um, Alana said once, We'd recorded with like six producers, but nothing sounded right. We were like, we're a band that's always going to be the live band that never records. We're forever fucking cursed. Yes. We could play live till our fingers bled and we didn't have vocal cords left. But the second we got in the studio, it didn't feel like we could achieve what we were hearing in our heads. Mm -hmm. And that was really frustrating. I think that we would watch like behind the music and see like Tom Petty in the studio with Jimmy Iovine and like the whole like Ben Montench is like just zeroing in on on Tom Petty and they're all kind of looking at each other and then damn the torpedoes happened. I think in our mind it was like oh you get in a room and you record 
And that's records are sold and records are sold like, no, like it was completely naive of us. We didn't realize that like, oh, wait, but like, yeah, of course, Jimmy Iovine has like the best engineer of all time. And like, it's not like the house engineer that like we were just like, this works. When we were kids, it was just kind of like, no, like you play the instrument to the best of your ability. Like, of course, when you record it, like it's going to sound amazing. And that's not necessarily true. Was the first time that the music in your head matched what actually came out? Mm -hmm. Did that happen in, in like 2011 with a long-haired music producer from Sweden? Named Ludwig Gorenson. Who came on the show last week. Oh! Was he the the entryway to like the light at the end of the tunnel? Well, he was the entryway to two things. He was the entryway to, oh, someone is actually spending time with us and trying to pull out what we're hearing in our heads. And also, oh my God, composing looks like so much fun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so... He kind of changed, I think, our lives. And that's why I think we always talk about how indebted we are to to Ludwig, because we also were using his studio for free. He was giving us his time for free. He wasn't getting paid. But I think it was also the advent of Danielle becoming like a garage band wizard and really like spending every day learning about Sonics. And that is a big kudos to my sister, (laughs) because I don't know if I would have had the patience, but Danielle really, again, I think she was also like, I have a year to figure this out. I'm going to just sit at this computer and twiddle the knobs and see what happens. Then we kind of took those demos to Ludwig and, you know, he would spend like the day composing and, you know, at the time he was doing like Fruitvale Station and he was also composing for Community. And so he would work all day. And then, like, I'd be in bed with, like, Badesco, like, Mario Badesco uh, acne cream. And I'd get, like, a text from him that was, like, I have a couple hours. Do you want to come to the studio? You know, he, he was really, really giving with his time and his energy. And, yeah, and, and you know, we came out with three songs that we were happy with, that we felt was kind of our, like, a calling card. It was And it was the thing that allowed us to go to South by Southwest and that was kind of the beginning of us becoming like a touring signed band. You know, when you said that he was the first person to actually try to excavate. What was going on up here? Yeah. Yes. How did he go about doing that? Trial and error. It was like he took the time to be like, what do you like? What do you think about that? Mm-hmm. And like, absolutely not. What do you think about this? What about that? No, I'm a little closer. Like. So all, like, the ba- okay. all the bad ideas. Throw the spaghetti at the wall, see what sticks. Mm-hmm. And I think before that, it was just kind of like, we would get in the studio and we'd be like, we're going to play it the way that we play live mm-hmm. and just record it live. And we, again, we didn't really understand that like, oh no, like you can, you can overdub things. Sub bass is fun. Like things like that were like, we, it wasn't in our wheelhouse until we met Ludwig and like he also was you know he was also doing stuff with Childish Gambino and like and but also was classically trained jazz guitarist mm-hmm. so like he really had Everything. kind of both sides of the coin was one of the songs that stuck uh forever that was the first one that we went into the studio with Ludwig for and we had had this idea that it was like like a party jam but we didn't know how to get there and it wasn't until we met Ludwig and he was like, oh, we'll just do this. And he was like, try like a fun baseline, SD. And I was like, okay. And then I recorded this baseline and we put some drums to it and that was it. And like it became like what it is now, which is like, you know, like a fun, sad dance song. Should we take a listen? Sure. This is Forever by Hyam. So, like, originally, it was like, do, do, cha, do, 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 cha, like, cut, like, do, do, cha, like, not a party jam. 
listening to that now, I was thinking about the 10-year anniversary of Days Are Gone, yeah. which I imagine has made you reflect on the past 10 years and then and all that has yes. happened. Yes, absolutely. What do you make of when you, when you hear that? I mean, it's, you know, it's obviously emotional. I mean, I think it's the age-old thing where, like, you have your entire life to write your first record. So, like, everything leading up to to that has just been, like, experiences and, and you know, writing about heartbreak and, and also and, and love. And it's really a summation of, like, S.D. Haim up until 2013 and <laughs> Danielle Haim up until 2013 and Alana Haim up until 2013. Mm-hmm. So, like, there's a lot of history there. When I listen to Forever Now, it's funny because, like, Again, we were, like, such a ramshackle crew at the time. Like, a lot of those sounds are Danielle's original sounds from GarageBand, you know? I think with any artist, like, when you listen to music from, like, either your first record or second record, you're like, oh, I wish I could have changed that. Oh, I wish that could have been better. Like, blah, blah, blah. But I definitely listened to our first record, and I'm just, I'm I'm super happy and stoked. There were a lot of good albums in 2013. Yes. Like, it's the 10-year anniversary of a few different ones that we're going to talk about on the show this fall and i was thinking for this this decade you've been on Mm -hmm. this like unbelievable run where you start performing for audiences around the world so much of those early years is marked by the embedded misogyny in the industry Mm -hmm. and you have this great quote you've said to that misogyny the sd heim now would not have been as polite since we are an impolite show, absolutely. What experiences were you thinking about when you said that? Well, uh, well, there's one in in particular, and I've I've spoken about it a lot because um, we wrote "Man in the Magazine" in "Women in Music" Part Three. It was really, really early on in in us touring, and I think we had, you know, I don't even think we were signed yet, but we had played a gig in London, and it was the three of us backstage when this journalist said to me or asked me, do I make the same faces on stage that I make in bed? I was not as good at yes anding, I guess. I think you gave a pretty good yes and. Oh, yeah. oh, I said there's only one way to find out. I was rolling with it because I didn't know anything different. And I think a lot of women in the industry also have come out and just kind of said like, they have the same experience where they're like, you don't want to seem like a bitch mm-hmm. and you don't want to seem like you're ungrateful and you don't want to seem like, you know, yeah, like you just want to be polite and in good spirits and always, you know. Moving along. Moving along. At the expense of you holding this. Feeling like you're going to talk, like, and also like in front of my sisters, like that's so fucking, like what? That is so weird and disgusting, for lack of a better word. And so, yeah, the, like the interview went on and I, I just really didn't feel safe in that moment. And thank God I had my sisters with me. Imagine if I was by myself in a room with a guy asking me questions like that. Like a grown man. Grown man. I mean, at the time I was, what, like 25, 26? I mean, I wasn't like a, you know, but I was a young girl. And um, in retrospect, I mean, yeah, I would have like, I don't want to say like I would get violent, but I definitely would have like stood up and been like, this is over. Like, what? Who are you? Yeah. But didn't have the tools back then to, to recognize that I could do that. When did you find those Get the tools? tools? Yeah. Um, I'd like to think, like, after that, I think I kind of, in retrospect, was just kind of like, wait, that wasn't okay. I need to be able to, like, stand up for myself. And in general, I'm, unless someone is fucking with my family, mm-hmm. I don't do a good job of standing up for myself. So in that moment, I think I also had to learn, like, no, Esty, like, you also, like, you have to protect yourself, too. It's not just the people around you. My guess is because um, I have a sense it's because you're funny. And then I think you're like, sure. oh, I'll just pivot out of this with a joke. And that works because it, like, settles the room. But it does not account for, like, when you go home for yourself, I don't think. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's what I'm asking about is, like, how do you hold that now? Well, I like the fact that I can be funny in the face of adversity. But like you said, I think after a while it, it wears on you. And, like, listen, I like the fact that I'm pretty jovial and life can be serious enough. Like, you know, I'd, I'd like to walk through life with kind of a glass half full mm-hmm. 
attitude. But yeah, I, I, according to my therapist, yeah, like me using humor is a defense mechanism. We could probably unpack that for the next 20 <laughs> years. Like, you know. Well, apparently I'm standing in this week. Yeah, you you have a blonde wig with your name on it. <laughs> you want to go to London? Have a good time. Um, I've, I've been waiting for the invite. Oh, you are. I mean, <laughs> you're not going to be the fourth Heim sister. You're just going to be a Heim sister. <laughs> I'm taking your role. You're taking my role. Yeah, yeah. You get a blonde wig. I, I'm going to stay here and and continue therapizing myself. I'm trying to think if there's anything I could do as well as you on stage. No, no. You, okay, here's the thing. Talk about humor. You could do a tight five <laughs> on stage. We we have we have the same height. We both have blue eyes. <laughs> But outside of that, you're you're you have a a je ne sais quoi, if you will. You know, I wasn't gonna say it, but yeah, yeah, I wanted to speak French on this podcast, Damn right. just for a second. Yeah, you did. You did a few other. Yeah, you referenced Proust and yeah, you, Les Nouvelles Vagues. I'm so cosmopolitan, cultured, really. Thank you. Um, <laughs> thank you. Didn't the title of your last record, uh, "Women in Music Part 3, mm-hmm. Didn't it come out of? These experiences that we're talking about? Yeah, I think it was, well, I think it came out of, Danielle had a dream where she saw it on a, like a bunch of billboards. And then she woke out of the dream and was like, that's actually really funny. And we had kind of, you know, been invited to things where it was like, wait a minute, like, why, like, why are we, why is our gender stratification in any of this? Mm-hmm. Why? A story that I always go back to is, you know, Joni Mitchell, arguably one of the best songwriters of all time. Mm-hmm. She's walking down the street in the 70s, and a man comes up to her and is like, oh, Joni, like, I, I have to tell you, I am so in, in love with your music. You're the best female songwriter of all time. Mm-hmm. And Joni was like, didn't, was just looked at him, turned around about face and kept kept walking. How are you going to tell Joni Mitchell that she's the best female? Mm-hmm. So, like, no, she's like the best songwriter. Yeah, I think, and, and, Buffy St. Marie also had stories like this, too. Really? At the same time. Yeah, they they were in the same... Yeah, yeah, yeah. The yeah. two of them. Oh, yeah. Well, I think it's... I think it's... It's it's just, you know, it's annoying. It really frosts my cookies when I hear <laughs> stuff like that. And as a type 1 diabetic, I don't like frosting on my cookies. <laughs> Do not like it at all. So, yeah, I just... I think that we're... We just got a little tired of this, like... It. And, like, and tired of you know, constantly needing to be, yeah, like gender stratification within music. Like, why? Why? Like, you wouldn't call the Strokes a boy band. So why do you call us a girl band? When you said tired of it yes, was the first time in this interview where you, like, paused and didn't totally say what you were going to say, I think. Well, I think, like, how, what else do you, like, call it? Feeling like people don't take you seriously because you're a woman. Feeling like people are, even after, you know, 10 years of playing my ass off as a signed musician, not just playing my ass off as a kid, Mm -hmm. men still not believing that I know how to fucking play my instrument and thinking that I'm miming. Or people seeing my me make faces and saying that it's put on or mm-hmm. that it's grotesque. And and when men make those faces, they're in it. They're like feeling it. I'm just glad this is an audio medium. No one needs to see my face when I, mean, I ask a question. I disagree. No one needs it. Everyone. I needs make to all see kinds it. of faces. You know, and that it means that you're <laughs> feeling it. And you know what? We're on a spinning rock in a vast universe. We should be able to feel things if we want to. If it's not hurting anyone else. My face isn't hurting people. And you know what? If it is, turn off the channel. I will say the music you have made while making that face has produced so much joy in my life. Thank you, Sam. Thank you. You're welcome, I, You sound so, so stern. Well, like, you know, I appreciate that. I appreciate you saying that. That's because true. I, and that's what I meant by, like, it's multifaceted, the whole, all of it. Being a woman in the industry can be really trying sometimes. And sometimes I feel like we're taking two steps forward and three steps back. I'd like to think that we're making strides. I'd like to think that I hopefully can give other women, you know, strength 
and in in knowing that like it's really important to like be vocal about this stuff and not take shit from journalists when they ask you inappropriate questions. Well, before we go, mm-hmm. let's take a step forward. Okay. And celebrate a song on this last record of yours. Okay. Because Women in Music Part 3, it came out uh, in the summer of 2020. Yep. It's very, very tethered to the pandemic. Probably for better or worse. But, yeah. But, but no matter what, I remember it feeling like a balm at the time. And two years later, we had your sister, Alana, on. Yes. And I thought I'd ask you a version of the same thing I asked her. Okay. As we get to the end of this episode. But first, why don't we take a listen to that? Great. This record, Women in Music Part 3, you said, we made this record to be played live. That was our mission statement for the whole album. What song from there are you most excited to play? Selfishly, it's kind of basic because it's like one of the singles, but the last couple shows that we've done, we've played a couple shows and we opened the show with the steps. And the energy of just hearing three snare hits, like, brah, brah, brah. It reminded me of why I love doing this. I remember looking at my sister, thinking about those, like, life moments where you're looking around and you're like, how the fuck did we get here? Hearing those three snare hits, it's so simple. And watching my middle sister play the drums, we were all kind of, like, looking at each other, asking each other, like, how the fuck did we fucking get here? Our life could have taken so many different turns. Danielle could have just kept going on and being a touring musician. Esty could have gone on and done, you know, she was at UCLA. She could have done whatever the fuck she wanted. I was kind of confused. I didn't know what I was doing. I was a nanny. I was doing Comcast jingles. <laughs> Who would have known? And and it really is not lost on me. I mean, we we say that sentence every show. We're like, damn, I can't believe it. It's unbelievable. I think... When you really think about it, three Jews from the Valley that are sisters (laughs) playing rock music in 2012, 2013, in the height of EDM, it wasn't necessarily like, yeah, I can see it. Like, I can see that happening. And, you know, being able to continue to make music and and tour and it's it's not lost on us that it is it is an unlikely scenario like we zigged and we zagged and i can sort of trace it back to a couple instances where i'm like oh that was really pivotal and mm-hmm. we got here somehow we were riding the wave we didn't know what the fuck we were doing i feel like we still i mean we're just like we just want to make the best music possible and put on the best shows possible and you know hopefully people enjoy it And I think all three of us want to continue to do this for as long as people will have us. And I think, you know, we all have ambitions to do other fun things. Like, Alana is an incredible actress. She's so good in Licorice Pizza. And it was a very proud sister moment, I think, for Danielle and I, seeing her on screen like that. And also came out of nowhere. And so I think we were just, me and Danielle were just like, whoa, like, our sister is an acting force to be reckoned with. Mm -hmm. And I think Danielle, too. I think that Danielle's, like, an incredible producer. Like, not just an incredible musician, but, like, she really understands Sonics in a way that I think a lot of producers don't really get. And her references, I mean, Danielle is, like, an encyclopedia. She's Encyclopedia Britannica Music Edition. Like, (laughs) get that girl on, like, Musical Jeopardy. Or, like, Don't Forget the Lyrics. Or, like, Beat Shazam. Like, she's... She has a vast knowledge of instrumentation and sonics and melody and just, like, she comes up with shit where I'm like, it feels like it's celestial, like it comes from a different place. And, you know, as long as the the people in the movies and the talkies will have me, I will be <laughs> waiting in the wings, like, tap me in, coach. I will I will be there <laughs> as long as they'll have me. But at the end of the day... I think my sisters and I truly love being able to see the world together and play music. Well, with that, she chose the steps. Okay. For us here, though. Yes. What song on the record do you hold closest to your heart? You know what? I think, and maybe this is because we're coming off of 
the Eras tour, and I got a lot of people saying, like, why didn't you play Los Angeles at SoFi? Mm-hmm. I think Los Angeles, having just finished tour and, like, seeing the world and, like, you know, I love, I really love the city that I'm from. This is Los Angeles from the album Women in Music Part 3. Los Angeles Give me a miracle I just want out from this I've done my share of helping with your defense But now I can't dismiss It's killing me Hometown of mine Just got back from the boulevard Can't stop crying The guy at the corner shop gave me a Why that song? Well, there's a couple things. I think, like I said, I think a lot of people were like, why don't you, like, that's such an opportunity to, like, play Los Angeles, like, in your hometown for six nights. And also, it's the first song on the record. It's the opener. And talk about those snare hits. Mm-hmm. That drum opening is just so good. And the groove of that song I love. And, you know, it talks about, like, you know, these parts of... The Valley that I, you know, Ventura Boulevard, I mean, like typical, like, you know, free falling, a la Tom Petty. It's also just a really fun bass line to play live. Um, yeah, I, I think that I do have, and I mean, we were just talking about how, like, all I wanted to do was get the fuck out of L.A., mm-hmm. especially in college. And now I'm like, why did I, I, I love L.A. I you love, had all these grand plans to leave. I know. I really wanted to get the fuck out of here. And now that I'm, you know, I think in my 30s, I think I'm like, no, like, I really love my city. All the nooks and the crannies and there's always something happening. And all my friends live here. Like, my family is here. You know, I love it here. Granted, this Los Angeles isn't necessarily talking about is kind of talking about what we're saying, which is like, how do I defend it sometimes? Mm. It's a lonely place. It can be a lonely place. But at this juncture of my life, I love living here. You know, um, I was thinking when we played that clip from your sister, that refrain she she had about, um, like, holy shit, I can't believe it turned out like this. Yes. For you, again, to say three Jewish women making rock music yeah. in 2013 again like everywhere we went it was like every headliner of every festival was like a dj or an electronica band and in that improbable situation yeah that we have been trying to trace and pinpoint yeah. and understand doesn't it all really come back to you age eight or nine your dad pulling out a vhs tape stop making sense putting it on the tv and you sit there going what going that i want to be that i it also came out of danielle completely surpassing me as a guitar player at age five at age five just really making me what my father calls depressedy <laughs> i was like I mean, I what not like Charlie Brown, like when he's sad, like with Mm -hmm. the cloud raining. I wasn't really allowed to watch the peanuts. So like this is I'm kind of grasping at straws here. But like, wasn't that the whole thing? Like, I think so. Okay, so his line of thinking was if guitar has six strings and bass has four strings, it's got to be easier. Not true. Very much not the case. But. You know, my dad was a drummer, and I think that he grew up in bands, and, like, so I think he was just like, well, I have a kid who's, like, really good at guitar. Like, maybe my older daughter would be into bass. And I think when my dad first came to me and was like, you know, maybe you want to try playing the bass, I was like... Is that what he sounds like? He's got a deep voice. You know, he's very, um... Yes, that's what my dad sounds like. He's very, very funny. 
my father is, you know, English is a second language. So sometimes he can't really find the words. So he has to show me visually. And I think he tried with words. And I said, I was like, like, what girl plays bass? Literally. So I was like nine. Like the bands that were popular at that point, it was like all grunge. And I think No Doubt had like just come out with Tragic Kingdom or something. And I was like, girls can sing rock music, but the person in her band is a guy. I was like, boys play bass. Mm -hmm. And my dad, to his credit, was like, I know a bass player that's a girl, that's a badass. And we went to, there was a video store on Ventura Boulevard in Laurel Canyon. And it's, it was like a, a used, it wasn't Blockbuster, it was like a mom and pop video store. Went there, picked up Stop Making Sense, and my dad popped it in. And I saw Tina Weymouth. And, and like immediately, I was like, first of all, she looks like Princess Peach. So I am very much in. I was like, this girl is a princess. And she was having, well, they were all having the best time. But it was the first time where I had been, I, I could visualize, I could be like, oh, she's playing the fuck out of this bass, laying it down. She is the literal foundation of this band. And like the guys looking at her and being like, yeah, like, yeah, she's a fucking badass. I was like, that's what I want. I want to be that. And then as a girl, when I found out that, like, you know, she was in Tom Tom Club, and I was like, damn, and she, like, she has her own band, and, like, she sings, and, like, she writes songs. I was like, that's the one. Why don't we watch this for a second? This is the track Slippery People by the Talking Heads from the film Stop Making Sense, directed by the late Jonathan Demme. And produced by Gary Getzman. Licorice Pizza, there you go. Yep. I could, I could watch this forever. Like, I don't want you to stop it. Uh, well, we don't have to stop it. It's so good. But, like, look at how much fucking fun she's having. When you see that, like, mm -hmm. when we watch that just now. Yeah. The film's going to be re-released. Yes. Soon. Yes. Which I, like, I can't wait to see again. Me too. Are you glad your dad asked you to switch? Yes. I mean... It wasn't even that he asked me to switch. It was just that he was like, there's this whole other component to music. Not everything is guitar and drums. Because my So to my knowledge, the foundation of a band is a guitar and a drum because my mom played guitar and my dad played drums. And so to me, it was like, if I was playing something different, I wasn't included in the club. I think that was initially why I was so sad mm. because my dad was like... That was the depressedy. That was depressedy. And bass isn't really the thing that pops out at you when you're looking at a band, right? It's the guitar player and it's the drummer. Like to an eight-year-old, like when I would see No Doubt, it was Gwen dancing with her guitar player mm. was like in the forefront. And Gwen, obviously. And like everyone knows like the lead guitarist of every like big rock band. It's harder to remember the name of the bass player. That's not lost on me. I'm doing everything in my power to change that. And this is where we really get into therapy. You know, the bass player typically is not the person that everyone kind of gives their attention to in a band, even though we are the foundation. We lay the foundation so that the lead guitarist can do their thing and really let their freak flag fly. But I will say, I think that a lot of bass players are changing that, one of them being Thundercat. Maybe I'll go on record. Maybe the best bass player of all time. Mm. Lucky enough to call him a friend. But he inspires me in that he, unlike, you know, people like Jaco Pasturas, like, made 
the bass a solo instrument because for so long it wasn't. This is the therapy part? That, that well, the therapy part is just like I, I like the idea of the bass being a solo instrument because mm-hmm. I do think that it's such a magical instrument. And I think that's probably why I was so also so against it as a kid was because I wanted to be the center of attention. <laughs> and the bass is not the center of attention. Um, now as I'm older, I, I can see that and recognize that. So that's the therapy part is I just really wanted to be at the forefront. Now I like being the foundation and I like being able to, you know, noodle and play around with melodies as a bass player. Well, if it's any consolation, you have been the center of the, of your attention in this podcast. Thank you. If you want, next time around, you can ask the questions. Don't threaten me with a good time, <laughs> Sam. I love that you're always up for a good time. Thank you. Wait, hold on. Isn't that your motto? For people who don't know, tell folks what your motto is. People that say yes, have adventures. People that say no, play it safe. People that say maybe, spend their whole life saying maybe, think of Hamlet to be or not to be. Well, I thank you. Thank you. For saying yes to coming on this show. Say yes. I say yes. Esty Heim, it's been a pleasure. Anytime. Take it on the road. This is a road show. This is a road show. Beautiful. our show if you enjoyed this episode be sure to leave us five stars on spotify apple wherever you do your listening i want to give a special thanks this week to tori cobb narrative pr netflix and of course our guest today esty hyam to learn more about her music and all the films discussed in this talk visit our website at talkeasypod.com you can also find that link in the description of this episode for more conversations like this one I'd recommend our talks with Ludwig Gorenson, Alana Hyam, David Byrne, Arlo Parks, Lord, Questlove, and Abby Jacobson. To hear those and more Pushkin podcasts, listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. Talk Easy is produced by Caroline Reebok. Our executive producer is Janixa Brava. Our associate producer is Caitlin Dryden. Our research and production assistant is Paulina Suarez. Today's talk was edited by Lindsay Ellis and mixed by Andrew Vastola. Our assistant editors are Clarice Guevara and C.J. Mitchell. Our music is by Dylan Peck. Our illustrations are by Trisha Shenoy. Photographs today are by Julius Chu. Video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Gaberzak, Ian Jones, and Ethan Seneca. I also want to thank our team at Pushkin Industries, Justin Richmond, Julia Barton, John Schnars, Carrie Brody, David Glover, Heather Fain, Eric Sandler, Jordan McMillan, Isabella Narvaez, Kira Posey, Tara Machado, Maya Koenig, Jason Gambrell, Justine Lang, Lital Malad, Malcolm Gladwell, and Jacob Weisberg. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to another episode of Talk Easy. I'll see you back here next week with fellow podcast host Sam Sanders. Until then, stay safe and so long. Smart journalism, fascinating topics, words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts.